All right, boys and girls, well, what are we called to do with our hearts and mouths? Violet? Very good. Yes, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. And the Wick Girls, it's on you this morning. So uh, uh, what is God according to that same article? What is God? The three S words. Remember the three S words? What is God? Annabelle? Annabelle. Single. single, yes, very good. Simple, single, and spiritual. Now, what are the two ways in which we know God? How do we know God? Uh, yes. Through creation is word, right. Uh, creation, word. These two books of Revelation, the book of creation and the book of Scripture. Now, we've spent a number of weeks thinking about this book of Scripture. Now, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? There are a few characteristics that we've been dwelling upon. What is the Bible? Anyone remember? Violet? We call upon a sister. Inspired word of God. Very good. It's inspired. It's breathed out by God. And because it's breathed out by God, it's authoritative. It's not the words of man, it's the words of God, and it's sufficient. It's sufficient for worship, it's sufficient for godly living, it's sufficient for salvation. Today, we are going to consider the Trinity, what Scripture says about the Trinity. What is the Trinity? Now, this Tuesday, I believe, is Reformation Day. Um, And so we would do well to remember what the Reformation was all about. And the Reformation was truly a reform movement, not a radical movement. The Reformation was truly a reform movement, not a radical movement. So boys and girls, imagine that you're doing a project, whether it be at home or school, maybe an art class, and you don't like how it's going, and so you, just, you have two options before you. You can either tear it up and throw it away and start over, or you can modify and improve your present work. Well, the reformers were in a similar position. They either could kind of throw out the present church and start over, or they could seek to reform the church. And they did the latter rather than the former. They didn't completely start over when it comes to how to do church. They didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Rather, they sought to reform the church. They sought to go back to the best practices of, of the early church and even the New Testament itself. One piece of evidence for this, that the Reformation was a reform movement, not a radical movement, is in the fact that our confession, the Belgian Confession, embraces the doctrine of the Trinity as it comes to us through the Nicene and Athanasian Creed. These creeds that were written in the the early church, the third and fourth centuries. And so the Reformation was truly a reform movement. We are lower C Catholic Christians. And again, we would do well to embrace that identity, especially, especially uh, this time of year. And so today we're going to be focusing our minds on the doctrine of the Trinity. What is the Trinity? Now we as moderns have the temptation to only really care about those parts of scripture that are immediately practical to our individual lives. And we don't really have much time for those passages of scripture that seem somewhat abstract as it describes the character of God. 
And the reason why we read scripture this way is that we've all been, at least to some extent, influenced by the Enlightenment. Or at least we've been influenced by a culture that's been influenced by the Enlightenment. And what is the Enlightenment? Well, the Enlightenment was a broad philosophical movement in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. And the thinkers of the Enlightenment basically said that any doctrine that cannot be exhaustively understood with one's reason or intellect or is not immediately practical to one's individual lives should be discarded. And so what do you think the thinkers of the Enlightenment did with the doctrine of the Trinity? Dug a hole, put the doctrine of the Trinity in it, and covered it with dirt. Right? They threw it in the ditch. They got rid of it. You can't exhaustively understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not immediately practical and useful to you in your individual Christian lives. Well, in the last century or so, there have been some modern theologians who have sought to recover this doctrine, but they have sought to recover this doctrine while holding on to the same basic assumptions as those thinkers of the Enlightenment. And so how do you think they have sought to recover the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, they have sought to recover this doctrine in such a way that it is practical, immensely practical, to one's individual life and existence. And so in recent decades, the doctrine of the Trinity has been used to argue for socialism, for pluralism, religious pluralism, for environmentalism, for egalitarianism, for complementarianism, for homosexuality, and this is not an exhausted list. And so people have tried to recover the Trinity, but they've sought to recover the Trinity in such a way that it's immediately practical, and there's a one-to-one parallel between the life of the members of the Godhead and our life here on earth. And in so doing, they have completely revised the classical definition of the Trinity that we confess in the Nicene Creed. And so this morning, we are going to think about the Trinity but we're not going to think about a doctrine that can be fully and exhaustively understood by our intellect. And we're also not going to consider a, a doctrine of the Trinity that is immediately and practically useful to us in our lives, at least not in the modern notion of, 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 of practical and useful. And so we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we ourselves don't manipulate the Trinity to prove and push our own social agendas, whether they be conservative or progressive. We have to ask ourselves, what is the Trinity ultimately about? Is it about God or is it about us and our agendas? So again, we're not going to consider the Trinity in this manner. And you might then be thinking, well, what's the point of thinking about it then? Well, the point of thinking about the Trinity is to fill our lungs with praise for who our incomprehensible God is. The point of thinking about the Trinity is to cause our minds and hearts to burst in awe and wonder at the majesty of our God. That's the purpose of thinking about who God is as one divine essence revealed in three distinct persons. And so what is the Trinity? Well, you'll notice that Article 8 of the Belgic Confession gives the basic definition, theological definition, for the Trinity. And then in Article 9, the 
confession gives the biblical basis or rationale for the Trinity. And so first we'll consider what is the Trinity theologically in Article 8, and then we'll briefly look at its scriptural or biblical foundation. Now, the opening line of Article 8 is very helpful in giving us a succinct definition of the Trinity. We believe in one God who is one single essence in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties. So again, God is one single essence in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct according to the properties that each person possesses. So one way you can think about the Trinity is God is simply Trinity. Boys and girls, again, we've already real, uh, confessed that God is a single, simple, and spiritual being. And so God is simply Trinity. He's simple in his essence, but triune in his persons. So God is simple in his essence, but yet he's triune in his persons. When we think about God's essence or substance, he's not many, he's one. He's simple in his essence. When you think about the attributes that God's essence possesses, he's infinite and almighty, he's incomprehensible, he's merciful and just. God possesses all of those attributes all at the same time. God is not an apple pie in which he's 25% love, 25% mercy, 25% justice, 25% wisdom, and the sum total of all those attributes is God. No, he is all of his attributes all at the same time. That's what we mean when we say that he's a simple being. doesn't mean that he's easy to understand. It means that he's not a composite being. God is simple in his essence, but yet he is triune in his persons. He's really and truly and eternally distinct in his persons according to their individual properties. And so our confession talks about these properties that each person of the Godhead possesses. So the Father, he is the cause, origin, and source of all things visible and invisible. And the Son, he is the word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit, he is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. But yet each member of the Trinity possesses fully that divine essence. And so we continue to confess in Article 8 that this distinction between the persons of the Trinity does not divide God into three. These three persons are only one God. There is neither first nor last, for all three are one in truth, in power, in goodness, and in mercy. Now, the ancient church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, has a great, a great quotation, which I believe comes from one of his prayers. And he says, every time, every time I conceive of the one, my mind drifts to the three. Every time my mind conceives of the three, my mind drifts to the one. I think that's a good, simple kind of idea and definition of this trinity. Now, after reading Article 8, you're probably, you may be a bit more confused than when you started reading Article 8. And we have to remember that when it comes to most Christian doctrine, we can only explain the what, we can't explain the how. We can only explain the what, we can't explain the how. Article 8 does a very good job of explaining the what, but doesn't touch the how question. It's not trying to, 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 to fit this doctrine 
into nice, clean-cut categories that we can exhaustively understand with our intellect. Because we can't do that. We're finite, weak creatures. And so, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we have real communion as we eat bread and wine by the power of the Holy Spirit with Christ's humanity who is in heaven. Try wrapping your mind around that. Kelvin said, I'd rather experience it than understand it. How do you put together the fact that God is sovereign over all things, but yet you still have free agency? That's hard to understand. So with most, if not all, Christian doctrine, we can explain the what, but not the how. And we should try not to press into that how question. Otherwise, bad things happen. We are to content ourselves with what has been revealed. And so we can explain the what, but not the how. Now, how did this doctrine, this doctrine that we confess in Article 8, how did it come to be? In Article 8 and 9, it confesses uh, or addresses some individuals from church history. It addresses the, the beliefs of the ancient fathers. It even embraces the teaching of the Nicene and Athanasian Creed. And so how did this doctrine that we confess in the language in which we confess it come to be developed? Well, Article 9 uh, 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 speaks of this individual called Arius. And Arius was a pastor, a theologian within the church in the 3rd and 4th centuries who was really wrestling with how to properly understand the relationship, particularly between God the Father and God the Son. And Arius believed the Bible to be God's word. He really wanted to protect the creator and creature distinction and so he was really trying to, to wrestle with how should we understand the fact that Jesus is God's son. When God is God, he is not like us. He doesn't procreate. And so how do we understand Jesus as God's son? And the conclusion that Arius came to is that Jesus is the, was the first part of, of God's creation, the chief part of God's creation, the pinnacle of God's creation. But... Jesus was still part of God's creation, which means that he does not share that divine essence as fully as God the Father does. Arius even will go on to say that Jesus has divinity, but he possesses that divinity not by nature, but by grace. It was bestowed upon him at some later point in time by God the Father. Well, this proved to be quite controversial within the early church. Indeed, Arius had uh, developed a slogan that was very popular among the lay people. And the lay people would almost sing this as a chant. There was when the sun was not. There was when the sun was not. The sun is the first created being. So there was a time in which the sun did not exist. And so Emperor Constantine called a council, a church council, in 325 AD in Nicaea, which is located in modern-day Turkey today, to address the views of Arius and his followers. And at this council, they drafted the Nicene Creed, which is the creed that we confessed earlier in our first worship service. And in drafting this creed, they explicitly rejected the views of Arius and his followers. Now, one thing that's important to note is that early on in this council, the Orthodox Church Fathers quickly recognized that merely quoting Bible verses is not going to do it. 
Because Arius and his followers also believed the Bible and also quoted the Bible. So what do you do when you have two opposing parties who both believe the Bible and both are quoting Bible verses? Well, you need to develop extra biblical language to distinguish your view from the opposing view, which is exactly what the church fathers did in writing the Nicene Creed. Now, when you read the Nicene Creed, there are many terms and labels that are not biblical. And that's intentional. They were seeking to develop extra biblical language in order to distinguish their interpretation of Scripture from the interpretation of Scripture of the heretics, of Arius and his followers. And so whenever you come across a theological term or label, whether it be in a creed or confession or some other place, the question you should ask is not whether or not the label or the term is biblical. The question you should ask is whether or not the concept is biblical. That's really important. Because oftentimes the labels and the terms won't be biblical, but the concept will be biblical. I mentioned this yesterday in our membership meeting, that membership is not found anywhere in the Bible. The term membership is not a biblical term or label, but the concept is. And so we're not going to die on the hill of the term membership, but we will die on the hill of the concept of membership. We believe it's a biblical understanding and practice and view to uphold within the church. So that's important to note, the distinction between labels or terms and their concepts. And so the doctrine of the Trinity was developed um, in, in a precise manner in, in 325 in the Nicene Creed. Well, where, uh, before we, we touch upon where we find this doctrine in, in Scripture, again, it's important to summarize what, what this Trinity is. And so thinking of it as simply Trinity, that God is one simple essence, but yet he is triune in his persons. That's really the, that's really the summary of the Nicene Creed. That's the summary of this lower sea Catholic doctrine of the Trinity. Well, where do we find this doctrine in Scripture? Well, as we just read, the Belgian Confession, Article 9, lists many scripture references in defense of this doctrine. And in Article 9, it, it, it explicitly says that this list is not exhaustive. And so there are even more passages that one could go to. But for the sake of time, I'm only going to touch on a few of the passages that Article 9 addressed. So you'll notice that Article 9 began in Genesis 1. And we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Singular. God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis 1.26, we read God saying, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Plural. So we see the singularity of God and the plural nature of God. Again, it's not precise. We don't learn that God's necessarily one divine essence and, and three distinct persons, but it's pushing us in that direction. Uh, we see, as we continue on, the Old Testament in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, that uh, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we have many, many witnesses of, or evidences of the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. We also encounter this individual who can seem some somewhat strange to us, the angel of the Lord. 
And in Joshua 5, we see that this angel of the Lord is worthy of worship as Joshua um, gets down and worships him and the ground in which he stands is holy ground. Many theologians have interpreted this angel of the Lord to be a pre-manifestation of the incarnate Christ. And so we do have manifestations of the distinct members of the Trinity in the Old Testament. However, the emphasis in the Old Testament is on the singularity of God. God is one. And so when we come to the New Testament, the plural nature of God, the fact that he exists in three distinct persons, is emphasized more than in the Old Testament, which is why in Jesus' baptism, we see God the Father speaking, Jesus being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Or in the Great Commission, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and says, All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The singular name of the triune God. The singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which is the benediction that we use at the close of our catechism service. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, there is this emphasis on these, on the, these three persons of the Trinity in the New Testament. However, we also see the unity of this one single essence. So, for instance, in John chapter 10... In John chapter 10, Jesus speaks about how he is in the Father, and he and the Father are one. So we still have emphasis on the singularity of God, that he's one single essence revealed in three distinct persons. Now, two of these references that, I, that, that the Belgic quotes and that I mentioned are Trinitarian formulas that occurred in, in corporate worship service, or corporate worship services. So, again, the Great Commission, baptism, where Jesus says, baptize the nations in the singular name of the triune God, and the benediction that Paul used at the end of 2 Corinthians. Those are Trinitarian formulas that were used in early Christian worship. This reminds us that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is more often caught and not taught. The doctrine of the Trinity is more often caught and not taught. How do we learn a robust doctrine of the Trinity? It's not necessarily reading dozens and dozens of books on the Trinity. It's worshiping at a church that seeks to worship in an explicitly Trinitarian manner. Think, for instance, of our services and the many Trinitarian formulas that we utilize, that you hear, that you recite. Think of God's blessing that you hear at the beginning of our communion service from Romans, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, God the Father. From the seven spirits before his throne, God the Holy Spirit. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, God the Son. Uh, think of our prayers. Our prayers are all explicitly to God the Father, in the name of the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about the songs that we sing. Think of the Gloria Patri. That's as, as Trinitarian of a song as you can get. 
And so the way in which we learn the Trinity is by experiencing the Trinity in worship, by going to a church that seeks to worship God in an explicitly Trinitarian way. More often than not, the individuals who have an orthodox view of the Trinity are not those, again, who've, written, who've read dozens and dozens of books on the Trinity. It's those who've worshipped at churches for years and decades who have sought to worship God in an explicitly Trinitarian way. And more often than not, those who have an unorthodox view of the Trinity are not those who are seeking to be a heretic. It's those who have worshipped in churches that have not sought to worship God in an explicitly Trinitarian way. And so worship is a very important avenue and means through which we learn and come to embrace the doctrine of the Trinity. It's, in a certain sense, more oftentimes caught and not taught. And many of the historic formulas and prayers and recitations that we use in corporate worship, the reason why they've been passed on from generation to generation, from century to century, is that they're faithful expositions of our triune God. And so we are called, we are called to worship God according to how he has revealed himself, revealed himself to us in his word. And he reveals himself to us as the triune God. Well, what is our response to this trinity? As I mentioned at the beginning, we are not to look for one-to-one -one parallels between the life of the members of the Godhead and our life here on this earth, whether it be in our family or in our society. That's the temptation, especially in our modern age. The temptation is to want to make the doctrine of the Trinity immediately practical. But God did not give us this doctrine for that purpose. The purpose is to increase our doxology, to expand our hearts and minds in awe and wonder of who he is, and therefore we should adore the majesty and incomprehensibility of our triune God. We should respond as Paul responds at the end of Romans 11, as he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And as you may have noticed, that is the doxology that we sing at the conclusion of this service. It's a good reminder of what our response should be to God's revelation to us of him in his word.